Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, June 25th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um, so I'm at a loss as to understand exactly what happened yesterday in Washington where uh, a bipartisan framework, two bipartisan frameworks were announced as having been created in the Senate. One on police reform, which has, isn't, hasn't been much discussed between uh, uh, Cory Booker and Tim Scott and somebody else. And then, of course, the big big one is the infrastructure framework uh, on, you know, with uh, $600 billion in new spending. Uh, and there was a White House event and Biden announced it. And uh, uh, with uh, Mitt Romney standing there and, and Kristen Sinema standing there and everybody standing there and they have a deal and everybody didn't get what they wanted and uh, that's what a, a deal is said Biden and all of that and then an hour later basically he said uh I'm not going to sign this unless everything that's not in it gets shoved into a budget reconciliation deal uh so that basically the infrastructure deal is now being held hostage to agreement by Pretty much by cinema and mansion, I guess, on putting everything that they agreed to leave out of the infrastructure bill in the budget reconciliation bill, which only needs to pass with 50 votes because it's a budget bill and uh, Vice President Harris can break the tie and therefore the bill will get passed. So um, this bill needs 60 votes. The infrastructure deal that was struck. Uh, if Biden holds to this, there will be no infrastructure deal because Republicans will not get to 60 with it. And so the $680 billion in new spending will vanish on bridges and tunnel, whatever, in favor of this other deal that shoves all the stuff in that's not really infrastructure is just like an enormous amount of social spending and well doesn't that suggest he's not going to hold to it like if you were really going to do the you know the the bait and switch here you know you'd announce the bipartisan package you you get some reluctant republicans for four reluctant republicans to sign on with the you know the bipartisan problem solvers get that through and then shove the kitchen sink reconciliation bill through with the tax increases and the social spending and the child care's infrastructure and all that nonsense. And then, you know, really frustrated Republicans would be, you know, they'd look weak and foolish to their voters and they'd be furious and double crossed. And that would be the end of the, the Biden administration's legislative phase. Sure. But they'd get everything they want. So why announce it ahead of time at all? I don't know. Help. 
Is it possible he wasn't supposed to? Is it possible he, as we love to say on the podcast, said the quiet part out loud and wasn't supposed to? I mean, we, we, we were talking yesterday about his how kind of rambling and, and meandering his thought process seems to be when he goes off script. But I, I certainly think we should consider that as a possibility. He did this weird whispering thing. You know, last week he's snapping at the press. This week he's whispering at them. It, it was an odd performance. And he was also weirdly boasting about how much... How, how, how great he is at the legislative process himself. You know, I know more than you do. It was a very, very odd, the whole thing was odd, including the, the whatever strategy they think they're pursuing. But I think it's possible he wasn't supposed to say that and did. Well, the, um, the, the wrench in the works aspect um, is kind of reminiscent of that thing that Trump did where the bill passed and then he said, no, there should be, there needs to be the $2,000 check and it after the fact, right? This is actually, you know, not not unlike Trump in terms of its um, unintelligibility, right? Well, it's not like that. Sort of ended up being good for Trump, didn't it? I mean, it no. wasn't good for Republicans. It was awful for Republicans, but it was, you know, it, it helped Donald Trump. It triangulated Democrats. It made his voters, you know, it satisfied his voters who don't care about anything insofar as they get a largesse from the Treasury. So, you know, it was good for him in the long run. Maybe this is good for Joe Biden. He says, well, this is what I wanted. Nobody gave no, me what I wanted. There was no long run because it was like, you know, October, right? <laughs> so then the election was in November. So I don't know that it was good or bad for him and for Trump in the long run. It's also it's also a little like uh, he, uh, the way Trump uh, would negotiate against himself or against Republicans while he was staying there. Not that that's what Biden's doing precisely, but... You know, Paul Ryan sits there and methodically comes up with a plan to fund the wall through a border tat that would allow blah, 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 blah. And Trump says no. Not clear why he said no, but he says no. And then and then Ryan says, okay, we said we want to repeal and replace Obamacare. We're going to do that. Here's the bill. So we're going to repeal Obamacare. We're going to we're going to repeal Obamacare and, and, and create a two year window for its removal and then in that two years we can structure its replacement and trump says no no it all has to be done at the at the same time Mm -hmm. so uh that was the end of that uh uh legislative sort of wonky legislative very smart strategy right which is you say we're getting rid of it but we can't just replace it with nothing we're gonna replace it with something new and shiny and better and great that republicans can all agree on and trump said no uh Biden is obviously doing this to placate not only himself and his own FDR ambitions and all of that, but uh, others in the Democratic Party who didn't like the fact that the infrastructure bill was so relatively modest compared to the $4 trillion version that he had originally kind of announced. And this was basically uh, $1.4 trillion bill or something like that with $600 billion in new spending instead of $2 trillion in new spending. So he wasn't really negotiating against himself, but he was negotiating against the deal that he had just announced that he was supporting. Um, and so I don't get, I don't well, get it. Was it. A, he, he still also... needs to get 60 votes for the infrastructure package. Republicans all have to vote for it. Well, and he like, said... Well, they don't all have to vote for it, but 10 of them have to vote for it for it to get to 60 votes and achieve cloture. 
this deal that he said he supports, and he's not going to get 30 votes for it from Republic. You know, he's not going to get, you know, I don't know how, I don't know how many Republicans will vote for it. If in doing it, they are, they're acceding to a, to everything that was left out of the bill. Well, he, he's also under it, it, the, the really weird thing about it is that he was praising the bipartisanship of the deal, um, which, of course, remember, this was his whole message about when he when he ran for president. It was thing. I'm going to go back to business as usual, where we make deals, where there's more bipartisanship. There's going to be you know res- mutual respect again, where the system will work as it was meant to work again. And actually, that's what the deal making process is. Right. You get every, and then you have the little photo op usually not with the vice president lurking in the portico in a weird way, but you know, you have the photo op and everybody moves on and then you go back, go back, you know, to round one on the next piece of legislation. But it was very strange to hear him praising bipartisanship in the old fashioned way in one minute. And then, as you said, John, a few hours later, basically congratulating himself for sticking it to the Republicans. And they knew that was the message. Lindsey Graham gave a quote to a reporter as he boarded a, a flight to California saying, you know, we were just made to look like idiots. And they were, and, and I don't think that's actually what they were made to look like. I think, I think it's, it's been more baffling in terms of Biden's approach rather than making Republicans look like idiots. I mean, this is all about Manchin and cinema, two Democrats who are standing in for another 10 Democrats uh, who are in, you know, various forms of political complication where they don't necessarily have safe seats. But they're the ones who are fronting this, right? They don't want to get rid of the filibuster and they want to, they don't want to sort of agree to all progressive ambitions. Uh, And so this is about them, right? This is about, they negotiated this deal. They like it. Now, all right, are you good or bad? Are you going to stick with us or are you going to be, are you going to show yourselves as turncoats because this is what the Democratic Party wants? They want this reconciliation bill that only takes 50 votes in the Senate to pass. Uh, It's time for you to declare your allegiance. Is your allegiance to yourself or is your allegiance to your party? And what this reminds me of is... Obama getting enraged and baffled because after Teddy Kennedy died, Joe Lieberman said, I'm not agreeing to the public option. I don't believe there should be a public option with health care. I don't want to open the door to a public option. Joe Lieberman, of course, at that point, no longer being an official Democrat, though caucusing with the Democrats, he had lost a Democratic primary in 2006, he had won his state as an independent, and he didn't want to, you know, he still voted pretty much as a liberal, but he didn't want to go with socialized medicine. And you remember all this talk, and it kept going on about how the Republicans were screwing Obama. The Republicans were the reasons that Obama couldn't get what he wanted, because the Republicans had said they weren't going to sign on to anything. But when Mitch McConnell said, we are not going to basically give bipartisan cover to anything Obama does, that was when Mitch McConnell was the Senate minority leader and Republicans had 40 seats and Democrats had 60 seats. And his whole point was, we have no power. The only power we have is making sure that whatever it is that Obama does 
is on him, including, by the way, if it were wildly successful. If it were wildly successful and everybody liked it, then, you know, there would be nothing that they could do. But they weren't going to provide him with bipartisan cover. And then Obama transmuted Joe Lieberman into the Republicans. Obama had to leave the public option out, but it was all this. It was somehow because of the Republicans, like Joe Lieberman, who was a who was caucusing with the Democrats, but wasn't going to be the 60th vote for a public option, was a was the was the Republicans. And in a weird way, so Biden is basically saying, Mansion and cinema make clear to me right now whether you, you know, I, I think you're Republicans, right? He said three weeks ago or something like that, that he said, like, they vote with the Republicans. And neither of them had cast a single vote with the Republicans in the course of 2021. They hadn't voted against any nominee. They hadn't, they had voted down the line 100% for Democratic Party things, but because they were saying they're saying we don't want to get rid of the filibuster and we don't want to spend the mo- kind of money you want to spend, they had become the Republicans to 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 Biden. I don't really understand what the negotiating principle here is. I mean, if you're saying to Joe Manchin, "You better vote for this reconciliation bill, or I'm wagging my finger at you," the rubber meets the road. He's in a state that Trump wins by 39 points. Biden has no power over him. All right, so we're groping for a rationale. I think probably that suggests Occam's razor is there is no rationale. However, you know, if we're trying very hard to figure something out, then maybe it's the martyring both of the kitchen sink reconciliation bill and infrastructure. Maybe they want both of them to go down for the Obama strategy to cast all the Democrats' hopes and dreams as being dashed by a recalcitrant group of Republicans that you need to oust in 2022. And this is the rallying cry. There's the bloody tunic of infrastructure. Go vote. Well, that's not no rationale. That's a, that's a plausible rationale. It, it is, but it's 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 overcomplicating it to the point. Where and also, it's it. infrastructure. Like I just don't see that being a really good bloody tunic for most people. Unlike you know, sort of the kind of relief packages we had with COVID, for example. He has a chance, Biden, in this infrastructure deal and in the police reform bill, of being able to say, as he as you indicate. I have now done something that my two predecessors were effectively unable to do. Uh, Not only Donald Trump, but also my old boss, Barack Obama. I have made, struck bipartisan deals with Republicans in the middle of the worst political divisions, ideological and partisan political divisions that we have seen in my lifetime. And I did it. We broke through the fog. We, 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 we've done this. He is sacrificing that message on the altar of, I think, what Noah is right, could be this weird bloody tunic strategy. I don't get it. I, I, I don't, you know, he won because what he, what he said, I, I can work with Democrats and Republicans. People like the sound of that. And and he's been presented with a deal that Democrats and Republicans have agreed to that he can get six that he can get cloture on. And then he torpedoes it an hour later. 
But what some- is he afraid of? He's going to be 82 when the election rolls around in 2024. Like, is he afraid? I, I, I don't. Again, I think. Yeah. Well, some people don't like the sound of that. Um, I know. Uh, n- namely, you know, AOC, who's you know been been taking to Twitter or wherever else to complain about it. Um, he is afraid of them and all Why? they represent. Why is Joe Biden afraid of them? Because see, this is where it gets weird. He's afraid of them because he has an, an outsized perception of of their popularity and uh, resonance among American voters. Well, he also sees them. I think. Well, I don't know if he personally, but there's a contingent in the Democratic Party that sees them as the future of the party. And this strategy might work if he's only planning to run, only planning to serve one term as president as well, right? Like, if I mean, he, you know, he, you can usher in a revolution better if you shuffle off arguing about how you tried to do good and it was always thwarted. Now we need to really go for it with whoever is. You know. But there, really, there are a lot of Democrats who look at the AOC and the squad and say, look at their energy, look at their commitment. Wow, what a future for the Democratic Party. I mean, we recoil in horror, but not everybody does. That sounds a lot more like Ron Klain than it does Joe Biden. Yes, <laughs> I, does. I still think Joe Biden runs in 2024, even if they have to prop him up like El Cid, because there is no successor <laughs> to, to as the sitting president. Sitting, if he's capable of form forming a sentence in public that's coherent, he will seek re-election. I mean, that's still better than the lurking, cackling Kamala, I agree, but I, I'm not sure that he will have it in I, I... Okay, wait a minute. So, he gets 81 million votes. He reverses Trump's advantage, gets the same number of electoral votes as Trump. His message was, effectively... I'm a grown-up. I can make deals. Uh, The Georgia election night goes a teeny bit in the other direction. And beginning in November as president-elect, he is facing, has, has no Senate majority. He has a House majority, but not a Senate majority. Everything that happened over the course of this year would have happened differently, right? Because all, everything that has happened has happened because they unexpectedly won those two Senate seats in Georgia and ended up with a 50-50 Senate with the vice president breaking the tie. His strategy for winning the Democratic nomination and the presidency was extraordinarily sound and was endorsed by actual victories at the ballot box, you know? He faced exactly the person that he is now. He faced in Bernie Sanders and other like this candidate who wanted the $6 trillion infrastructure bill and wokeness and this and that and the other thing. And he said, that's not me. I don't understand how you're going to pay for this healthcare stuff that you're talking about. Where is that money going to come from? And then he runs in the general saying, I'm not Trump. I'm not like the guy who says everybody that I disagree with is a monster and I don't care about working with getting anything done. I would like to get some things done. And he gets 81 million votes. But there's weirdness. There was weirdness to Joe Biden's strategy that we overlook. Yeah. Where did he win? Where was his first victory? It was in South Carolina. 
Yeah. Lost Iowa convincingly, lost New Hampshire yeah. convincingly. That's usually not very good for a Democratic nominee. I think Bill Clinton was the last to pull something like that off. Right. How did he win the presidency? He won the presidency without Ohio and Florida. First time since JFK any candidate has ever done that. Right. So it's not like it was destiny. There was no. some flukish aspects to Joe okay. Biden's victory. Okay, but let's talk about South Carolina. And this is sort of interesting because it ties into the New York, oddly enough, the New York, the New York mayor's race. He was saved and his candidacy was enshrined. And then, you know, after this uh, two bad performances in these overwhelmingly white states with woke voters, he was saved in South Carolina by middle-aged black people, particularly women, who said, I don't know what these people are talking about. I, I don't, you know... What What is all this? I don't know what the hell they're talking about. I like Joe Biden. He's been around. He was Obama's vice, whatever. He's old. He's seasoned. He doesn't sound like a crazy person. Similarly, in the New York City mayor's race on Tuesday, the two top finishers are Eric Adams and Maya Wiley. Maya Wiley ran as a lunatic progressive. I mean, I mean, a lunatic progressive wants to cut a billion dollars out of the budget of the police department. I, all this kind of stuff. And Eric Adams was saved by middle-aged black people, voters in Brooklyn and in the outer boroughs who were like, I don't know what these progressives are talking about. There's crime and it's, and it's gross on the streets. And this guy was a cop and he's black. So he's not going to be like, he's not just going to be some down the line, uh, you know, uh, rah-rah police guy, but he's at least was a cop and he's talking about public safety. And I don't know what the hell they're talking about. So Biden and Adams, in a weird way, win the same kind of, by the very people that the woke Democrats say their entire focus is on. People who are victims of, of systemic racism, people who are victims of inequality and the in, and racial injustice and all of that, and those people are saying, "We want sane, rational people who sound a lot less ideological." No thanks. We don't like the sound of your agenda. That's that's not for us. That's for you, white people who who whose entire identity now apparently is bound up in your saying nice things about black people, but that are actually will be of no help to black people. So Biden yesterday does a classic government thing, which is he says, great, okay, I can't get $2 trillion in new spending, but I can get $700 billion in new spending. And I, what's more, I've got Republicans agreeing to $700 billion in new spending, I have corrupted them. I have I have forced them out of their Tea Party government can't do anything thing to agree to this. It's not half a loaf. It's like 80% of a loaf. I did it. This is what I said I was going to do. The voters that put me in said this is kind of what they wanted me to do. And I did it. And then two hours later, he drops a bomb on his own successful deployment of the policy that he just saw two days ago in New York 
ended up outdistancing the very progressives that that he himself had outdistanced in 2020. What happened between four o'clock and six o'clock Thursday afternoon? What happened? Are we discounting the the possibility that this was just an errant thought that escaped his mouth that has absolutely no bearing on anything? That's what I was saying. Yes, it's possible. So, yeah. Okay, Christine, you did say that. It's just it's far too Trumpian <laughs> for us to, I guess, accept that as a Joe Bidenism. But perhaps it is. Okay. Here's why it probably isn't because this is what Chuck Schumer said. Chuck Schumer said as the deal was being formulated that you couldn't do one without the other. You couldn't have the infrastructure bill, which requires 60 votes for passage, without the reconciliation bill, which requires 51 votes for passage, and that the reconciliation bill would feature everything that had been taken out of the infrastructure bill. And by To be fair, he said this on the, the day, not yesterday, but the day before. Right. But Biden effectively endorsed this Schumer strategy two hours after having a White House lawn event trumpeting the bipartisanship. Um, yeah, so like if you're pulling, if, if it's the, the sting, the, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Right. I was going to say, so it's like the love and marriage strategy. They all along, they're like, you can't have one without the other. But they, so then actually the performative thing was the bipartisan press conference. He cynically was boasting about his bipartisan agreement when in fact the whole strategy all along was to, was to keep those linked. Yeah, or, or he didn't understand or and this is the other part which is gets to the weirdness of biden he didn't understand that he was blowing up the bipartisan deal by saying we'll just shove it all into the into the reconciliation deal because he's sitting there in the white house bubble and nobody in the room said well, you know, if we agree to Schumer's strategies, I don't know, that's going to kind of like look like we're, we were just trying to do an end around and the deal is going to, the bipartisan deal is going to collapse because maybe he didn't think it through. I mean, that's where he's 78 and whispering and yelling and doing whatever and having an ice cream cone and, you know, and and and, and going, shaking hands on the rope line and doing all, you know, being wacky or weird or whatever. Um, so I don't know. Um but um, I also don't really understand what what's going to happen. So I mean, the truth is that you could he could get nothing. I mean, I say he could get no bipartisan deal, and Mansion or Cinema will say I can't agree to this reconciliation package, and then there'll be no bipartisan deal, and there'll be no other spending on on this stuff. Because well, the CBO still has to weigh in on what the what the stuffed full of you know the 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 super reconciliation bill spending would actually how it would be paid for. They haven't really weighed in yet, and if they do, and it says there's no way that what this bill claims it can do will be paid for itself, that's you know, it's not good. That's he's claiming still but infrastructure that was tax. right. Infrastructure right, was, was financed, or yes. <clears throat> at least we understand yeah. it was deficit neutral. So you can't have one without the other, right? You can't go the the get the kitchen sink childcare infrastructure, new taxes, reconciliation process without the actual real physical infrastructure bill. Right. So all I'm saying I mean, is you could, yeah. but you would it would probably be a significant liability. 
all, all I'm saying is that um, the complications of trying to run a wildly activist administration without sufficient majorities in the House and Senate uh, is, 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 is getting ever clearer. Um, and uh, the media can, you know, people can whisper sweet nothings in, in Biden's ear about being FDR, being LBJ, or, you know, whatever, or doing, you know, historic things and being big or whatever. Um, but the rubber meets the road when one, uh, the, when one of the 50 senators uh, represents a state that Trump won by 40 points. Um, you know, and- this is... Yeah. This is all. This is also we, we've said for a long time. I've said that you know certainly during the campaign, and I think you know in the, in the first months of, of the of the presidency, Biden has not actually chosen one side of his party over the other. Um, he has he has walked the line the whole time. He's been threading this needle and kind of getting sufficient credit from both sides by doing this, um, and. This messy, convoluted, paradoxical thing he's doing now is, among other things, is keeps that lack of a choice alive, right? Because he sort of mm-hmm. oversaw the the bipartisan nature of it, while while objecting to the bipartisan nature of it. So he's still not coming down on any side, which which is fine, by the way. I mean, he doesn't have to. He just can't do both at once like at some there that we are reaching a moment at which he he had a choice he is he has forced upon himself his party and the republicans and everybody a choice that he could have avoided by saying look we can't do x now you looked at that we thought we could shove it all down everybody's throat now and we can't, like, in part because the emergency is over. The emergency that allowed him to say, we have to do all this because the country is in a state of emergency. And, you know, next week it's July 4th and everybody is going to be able to do whatever they want to and all of that. And the emergency is over. So using the emergency conditions as the excuse has faded as, as something as, as, the, as reality has set in. Um, I, yeah, but he's also. I think I, I like this idea though that that he's, he keeps trying to thread the needle long past the point. I mean, the thread is already sure. fraying, but he has been able to do that on really difficult issues where there isn't a lot of compromise within his own party, like the border and immigration, by shunting it off to the vice president. She's she's in Texas today, and I'll. It's worth watching what she says, how she says it, and the reaction, particularly among you know the more progressive leading part of her coalition, because there's no way he can he can pretend. Bipartisanship on an issue like that, I don't think. Not with the, right. his own party's left flank, really having completely uncompromising view about that issue. Well, it's not just that; it's also the real question here. Then gets to the media, um, because uh, the border is a media issue, but but and I, both media, both the left wing media and the right wing media, the left wing media drove the border issue in 2017 and 2018 separated kids, kids in cages, families, all of that stuff. Um, Is Jacob Soboroff of MSNBC, is MSNBC going to give Biden a pass if 
the behavior of the Biden administration at the border remains pretty much congruent with the behavior of the Trump administration? Or will they essentially say our purpose here is to be a block and tackle for Biden and that he really doesn't have much choice and this is how we're going to do it and we're going to soft pedal? Uh, we're going to soft pedal the issue. They may, but that's not going to stop the right wing media from saying Biden is destroying our border. Biden is Biden is uh, you know sort of like doing whatever he can to ruin our border security and all of that. And that, as we know, is a very potent message, particularly for people who want to believe the worst about him and have no incentive to sort of say, well, it's a little complicated. Actually, what he's doing is really more in line with what... But it is complicated. I mean, it would be malpractice to oversimplify this issue, and that's probably what they're going to do. But the distinction between using the Flores settlement as a deterrent model, which failed, by the way, and just abiding by the terms of the Flores settlement are different, very different. And yeah, so is is Mr. Soboroff going to make that distinction? Perhaps he should, um, but it would be politically disadvantageous to do so. But yeah, the Trump administration wasn't guilty of putting kids in cages because they just wanted to. Right. They, that was what uh, then Department of uh, uh, Homeland Security, uh, I think Kelly, for yeah. his person, John Kelly. Yeah, John Kelly. John Kelly said this was designed to to compel people not to come. Biden administration is doing just about everything except saying that everything they have to do to comport with the Flores settlement is deterrent. It was purely rhetorical as a rhetorical flourish, and it was easy to 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 argue against that rhetorical flourish. I did, and I think it was right, and I stand by it. Um, but it was only ever that. It wasn't a change in policy. Right. So, guys, um, uh, the week is coming to a close. This is your chance to read the end of week Dividend Cafe from the Bonson Group at DividendCafe.com. Come out tonight. Go subscribe to it or go to Dividend Cafe tonight and read it. Uh, it will feature a summa of the week's financial activities um, and, uh, and, and, and everything that has gone on, including uh, what the politics and the economic effects and practical effects of this controversy that we've been talking about now for half an hour about uh, the budget bill, the reconciliation bill, and the infrastructure bill, might what effect that might have on uh, markets, market decisions, investment decisions, and the like. So that's DividendCafe.com from the Bonson Group, a bi-coastal management firm with $3 billion under management, run by commentary contributor David Bonson. Um, you... Owe it to yourself uh, to read it, to subscribe to it, um, and to be illuminated by it at DividendCafe.com. And it is, as I keep telling you, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industries. DividendCafe.com. Noah, uh, moving on from Biden uh, to uh, the Republican Party... um, I missed this for some reason, so you're going to have to lay it out, or you guys are going to have to lay it out. Uh, uh, Mike Pence went rogue. Well, not really. I mean, it's it's of a akin to things he had said in the past, although he said it with a certain sharpness. Now that is particularly welcome from my perspective. He gave a speech in Simi uh, Valley, California, at the Reagan Presidential Library. 
um, before an audience that is not necessarily demanding his scalp as he had in other audiences. Other audiences have been so hostile that I think he probably was a little unnerved by their hostility, but nevertheless, skeptical. Um, <clears throat> and in those remarks, he once again described January 6th as a dark day in the history of the United States of America, which cuts against the narrative preferred by the Trump wing of the party that it really wasn't much of anything at all. Um, and thanked uh, Capitol Police for protecting uh, both members of Congress and himself and saving them from something uh, rather ugly. And also added that uh, in, a, in, a, in a slightly stronger uh, reproach of that wing of the party, uh, repudiated the people who thought that he could simply, uh, from his his very ceremonial position, certifying the election results uh, in Congress, that he could have simply uh, waved them off and thrown the whole thing back to the states. And he said, quote, but the Constitution provides the vice president with no such authority before the joint session of Congress. And the truth is, there's almost no idea more un-American than the notion that any one person could choose the American president. And look, what's the significance of this? I don't know. Maybe there's not much at all. Um, but it is welcome to hear the wing of the party that is friendly towards an insurrectionary element to tell them that they're quite frankly un-American and that they have no respect for the Constitution that they claim to revere. Uh, I appreciated it. And it's good to hear the vice president say that. He, said, listen, he also said, listen, no one's more disappointed in what happened last November, then I, then, then I, I understand your disappointment. I do too. I was on the ballot. I mean, that's a line that I think can last all the way into 2024, uh, in the event that he was to pursue his political career further, which I think is inevitable, but nevertheless sets the stage for moving forward in a way that I think most Republican voters want, but the most vocal elements of the party on cable television and in Congress most certainly do not. I mean, the only, I, I agree with everything you said. The only un unfortunate aspect about it is that this is a response to the wing that's already rejected him. You know, it's just him now saying, okay, I hate you too. I guess, but in Simi Valley? Sure. Right. So, so helps, I mean, these are kingmakers. Right. Yeah. Simi Valley is the home of the Reagan Library. Uh, essentially the old line Republican Party, the center of the old line Republican Party, you know, well-to-do Californians, not, not uh, you know, guys in Ohio and Wisconsin, you know, who's, who, you know, didn't graduate from high school or didn't go on to college. Um, so it's an interesting place to do this. I... Uh, you're saying uh, that this is an electoral strategy. I, 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 I veer. I, I, I bounce around on this by by the day. Um, I, I think this ends his uh, ambitions to be president. I think the notion that you that he can run, he can be Trump's sycophant from 2016 to 2021. Uh, and then become a kind of implicit critic of Trump's behavior at the tail end of the administration and maintain his reputation as being Trump's loyal lieutenant and the carrier of his flame while rejecting Trump's most extreme expression of his own 
itself. Trump won't stand for it. The Trumpers won't stand for it. If he has any future, it is as Trump's successor. So if Trump runs, he can't run anyway. Because where's he going to go? I don't see any way forward for him after this. Well, listen, um, <clears throat> we're witnessing the evolution of this narrative as Donald Trump sort of fades from relevance. He's about to be relevant again because he's going to hit the trail. But we're seeing, we're already seeing the successors, the, the people who are vying to be successors, sort of try to scratch out this strategy. And the people who are positioning themselves as the most uncritical uh, and sycophantic, and perhaps even repudiating their own criticism of Donald Trump, are looking pretty embarrassing. People like Nikki Haley, who are, who was, she was the other Politico uh, profile, I think where she was talking about repeating like lines from conservative blogs that were stale in 2016. Like, ah, oh, Republicans don't fight anymore. Ah, oh, Republicans just get steamrolled all the time. And it just comes off as, as dated, anachronistic, backward looking. And then you have people like Ron DeSantis who have muted their criticism of the president most surely, but have cut their own, forged their own path and are addressing the here and now and are presenting themselves as oppositional figures to the president today and the issues today, not backward looking. And they're the ones who are emerging and looking, you know, more viable as candidates. And that that's not going to stop. That trend is only going to accelerate. Right. But uh, Pence isn't in either lane. He's either Trump's successor or he's not Trump's successor. He's either Trump's chosen guy or he's not. He is clearly no longer Trump's chosen guy. Trump thinks he was a wuss and a and a you know and a scaredy cat and whatever else. I think he used a, another five letter word beginning with the with the letter P to describe Pence, and and the, the word wasn't Pence. Um, and so uh, he's got nowhere to go. I mean, DeSantis didn't work for him. DeSantis's only connection to Trump was that in 2018, when he was running for governor, he he made these insanely slavish, pandering Trumpian commercials that helped him win the party's nomination and get elected. And then he began governing as a I get my hands dirty, competent administrator leader and then covid then really solidified the sense that he wasn't just that but was somebody who could take a leadership position hold a controversial view withstand the attacks of the mainstream media keep going the way he was going and do what he thinks is is necessary and he doesn't have any connection to trump trump didn't get him elected trump he didn't work for trump he doesn't have to he doesn't have to do anything he that's his lane Nikki Haley's associated with Trump. She he made her UN ambassador, right? Um, all these other people had to reckon with Trump in 2016 and then shift their views of him, right? Uh, well, Rub- well Rubio I mean, they're, and Cruz and yeah, they're more like the they're more like Trump stakes. All these Pence Haley, they're, they're the they're the casualties of bad brand management, right? I mean, they're trying to, and this was actually something that I think Trump did to the GOP that we still haven't figured out. He did blow up the brand, like what people thought of when they thought of what the what the Republican Party is, which was of course his intention. It's what he boasted about. It's what I think he's going to spend this summer reminding everybody about whether I you know whether or not the American people still have any tolerance for that beyond the really 
diehard Trump fans is is the question. But I think Pence in particular, I agree with you, John. I don't think you're a, you can be a good traditional GOP vice presidential soldier in the you know, brand busting Trump administration and then try to, you know, revert back to your regular brand. I mean, he, it, it, Pence was a pretty typical kind of Republican, right? I mean, as governor and, and whatnot. So he, he has no place. I mean, I think that's why both he and Haley are kind of flail, not flailing, but th- their messaging is not landing with Republican voters and they're struggling to find what their voice is going to be because they do have that connection to Trump. And, it, and he does make it a very Manichaean choice for the people who work for him. You're either you're either a traitor who betrayed him and, and denounced him or you're a loyalist. There's really not a lot of middle ground. And the, the real weather veins in the party folks like Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, very ambitious, who want to rise to the presidency <clears throat> and who are willing to say or do whatever it takes to get there, have been conspicuously silent on the president's legacy of late. Right, but they he, but they won't be they won't be able to keep silent if But he they don't know what to say anymore. I know. That's what and I'm which saying. Which suggests that the ground is shifting under their feet. Mm, I don't know about that because they don't know what to say anymore because they don't know what will what will awaken stir the beast against them. That's a lot of the reason that they don't know what to say. They don't know what to say because they don't know they don't understand or can't reckon with what kind of power he might have over their coalitions and their people and the talk radio and their own fundraising. Rub, they, you know, Rubio is running again in uh, in twenty twenty two. Apparently, no Trump family member is going to run against him. But, you know, if if he uh, – we'll see what happens with Trump reemerging as a, you know, as a sort of political performer over the next month or so. Um, we'll also see what happens when this stuff he's been telling people about how he's going to be being reinstalled by August, when August comes and goes and he's not reinstalled as president – uh, what that's going to mean? Is he going to back away from that? Is he going to be t- hinting at it and talking about it? I mean, he did this statement the other day in which he said 2024 or before, meaning either I'm going to get reinstalled as president before 2024 or I'm going to run and win in 2024. And of course, if he runs, all of this is moot because uh, as I keep saying, I don't really understand how uh, in the absence of an indictment or conviction or some really horrific thing that happens or something like that, how any Republican currently extant denies him that nomination if he wants it. Um, and particularly since we're now having a, we now have a president who is older than he would be when he ran. The only thing you could say is he's too old. Well, we've already just, we've just elected a 78 year old man as president. So that, that line is not going to function anymore, um, and 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 so to me, you know that that's where a lot of this stands. And the other thing that needs to stand are trees, and because uh, you know, as you know, Mitt Romney said, the trees are all the right height in Michigan, and the trees can all be the right height on your property if you use fastgrowingtrees.com, the world's largest online nursery. You can skip the big box stores and head there. To your online portal, no more waiting in lines, messy cars, digging through a lackluster selection. Just go to fastgrowingtrees.com and choose from thousands of varieties of trees, shrubs, and plants. Expertly curated to thrive in your area, delivered to your door in one or two days. Whether you're looking for shade, privacy, fruit trees, or just added color for your yard, every plant is shipped with a well-developed root system ready to explode with new growth. Uh, There's a better way to buy trees and shrubs and plants for your home and yard. 
Planting season is here. Join over 1 million satisfied gardeners at fastgrowingtrees.com. Plus, it's 30-day alive and thrive guarantee means your plants will arrive happy, healthy, and ready for planting now through July 31st. Go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary for 15% off. That's 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. Fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. Um, There's nothing really to be said politically or ideologically or anything like that about the horror, the unfolding. I mean, not unfolding because it's already happened, but the unfolding tragedy in in Miami and Surfside, uh, the collapse of this building, the mayor of Miami announcing this morning that uh, the number of uh, people unaccounted for in the building collapse has risen to about 160 from 99, which is where it was which is what we were told yesterday and um, uh, which would make this a, you know, this is like a, a almost unparalleled uh, disaster for those of us who have lived only have ever really lived in apartments. Um, you know, uh, not that I live in a building like that, but you know, it is like seeing that is like your worst nightmare. Like it's the whole thing is you're living in a, solid, firm, tall structure that supports itself through the, you know, mysteries of engineering and seeing something just as as you've seen that footage just collapse all at once um, is, you know, uh, brings that kind of nightmare image of the twister, you know, or the house or the tornado that destroys everything uh, into urban life in a very... Um, unforgettable, uncomfortable, and, 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 and terrifying way. Uh, Christine, uh, you, this then gets to interesting, not sociological questions about the place and time and place where, where this happened that is a favorite subject of yours. Well, as a, as a someone who was born and raised in Florida, I have a longstanding theory that the that, that the state itself is constantly trying to purge itself of human inhabitants with a number of you know uh, to to allow its tropical and and uh, uh, often violent uh, tendencies to come back out. But the the thing about Florida that a lot of people who don't who aren't from there uh, don't realize is that not only is its base, I said the other day, it's like Swiss cheese, kind of limestone, it's very porous, but the water table is extremely high. So no one in Florida has a basement. I remember being a astonished the first time I visited someone's home outside of Florida that actually had a real basement because you can't in lots of the parts of the state you can't actually dig down and have a basement it would immediately flood so the water table is high in the in the you know in the 60s 70s 80s buildings that were built with foundations um that weren't uh where they didn't really make these smart design choices like they do now could have foundations that could be corroded by salinated water as the water table rises through the limestone. So it is certainly structurally possible that over time, this building's foundation was being eroded. They didn't realize it. Um, and it did eventually that the stress of the weight of the rest of the building just caused it to collapse. It's certainly possible. And it's my sister is an architect who now having been raised in Florida now lives and works in Northern California. So she deals with a lot of foundation issues for earthquake safety. And she, when I asked her, she said, it's, it seems freakish, but actually it is possible that over time, the stress of the weight of the building on a, on a deteriorating foundation could cause such collapse. And as, as Noah and Abe and all of us were talking before we started taping, this does happen a lot in places like China. Building collapses are not as unusual as they are here, but we still do have 
buildings in this country that, you know, we're talking about infrastructure that do need to be examined, inspected, and, and uh, their foundation shored up. Because over time, we have learned that structurally some of these things are not sound. So it's a horrible tragedy. I really feel for all the families down there. And I hope that they they continue with the rescue operation. You know, people have been known to have survived these kinds of um, destructive events and, and be alive if, if rescuers can get to them. So hopefully, I know they, they, the rescue workers have been working through the night and, and really trying to help. So hopefully we'll hear more good news than bad over the next few days. But it's really it's awful. You know, in 1992, there was this horrible hurricane hit South Florida, Hurricane Andrew. Um, and uh, if you're, if you are, you know, are old enough to remember the pictures, the devastation was staggering, and it wasn't really because of the hurricane. It was actually because uh, the building codes, particularly in South Florida, had been so lax for so many years. Uh, that the minute that this uh, weather emergency hit the way it hit, um, houses just crumbled like paper. Buildings fell to pieces like like paper, and the entire way that construction was done in Florida was radically revised to take account of the fact that, uh, you know, uh, this was a gold rush state, um, you know, sort of real estate play state and that uh, and that a lot of stuff had been done quick and dirty and fast and cheaply uh, in a place where that really can't happen because of the logistical reasons that that Christine talks about. This building, I think, is 50 years old. It's funny because in in New York City for 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 decades now, New Yorkers have had to deal with this terrible inconvenience uh, that are called the sidewalk sheds or scaffolds. That is that um, uh, buildings have to undergo inspection, and if uh, if the inspectors find anything weak on the externals, uh, immediately the building has to put up a sidewalk shed, and it has three months to kind of hire somebody to fix to. Uh, point the deal with the terracotta or tiles or bricks or anything like that because in the early 80s there were these mysterious collapses of kind of like Romeo balcony or Juliet balconies excuse me or you know trellises or things like that that sort of fell to the street and you know the funny thing about buildings um so I live in a building that's 113 114 years old uh that's old. Like that's old. Uh, post-war American construction, sort of like the the classic, you know, sort of white brick apartment building. Those are like 50, 60 years old. When they were built, they were kind of built. They 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 weren't exactly built to last, except to the except you know, and tropically. And so now, you know, you don't tear down a, a big building to put up another big building. Like the finances of that don't don't really work. That's what was sort of going on in the first half of the 20th century is you'd have a house torn down or three houses and then a building put up or something like that. But these things were built, you know, pretty well, but they weren't built to – they're not, you know – Delphic temples made out of marble or, you know, or like they're not going to withstand and they kind of have to be rebuilt over time as people are living in them or as they are surviving. They, the, you know, 
things have to be replaced. It's like any ha- a house has to have a new roof, right? So, so do apartment buildings. House has to have new siding. So do brick apartment buildings. And apparently this building in question was in the process of being extensively investigated on this question of its of its foundation. And they were either starting to make repairs or they had been planning to make or whatever. Um, and so, you know, it's a it just an interesting example of what it's like as America gets old. You know, one of my favorite things about the infrastructure debate is that people who don't live in, you know, uh, big cities, uh, stuff like that, or live in, you know, kind of like the Southwest, you know, which has only recently been populated in a funny way, you know, um, with hundreds of thousands of people moving to Nevada or, you know, Utah to retire or place Arizona, places like that. Is they're all like, ah, you people, you all have, you know, I moved from high taxes to low taxes and we have low taxes here and everyone should move here because there are low taxes. Well, there's a reason why it's expensive to run and administer and maintain a place like New York. And it's not just that it's run, it's on the blue state model and it's got bad mayors and, and unions and all of that. It's old. The subway system is 120 years old. The built many of the buildings like mine are like more than a hundred years old. The streets, the the water pipes, everything like that. This is a city, a highly densely populated city that had to have infrastructure to support this enormous number of people. Fe- talk to me about how much it's going to cost to live in Phoenix in 2050, when Phoenix is a city of two or three million people, who all who moved there pretty much from ni- the 1960s to the 1990s. And there are houses and those, and the, all that stuff that was built to support them is all going to have to undergo the same, you know, wear and tear and age and replacement as a place like New York or a place like Chicago or a place like Boston or anywhere that is old. And it's great to be able to discard it, right? You can you can say, okay, I don't want to pay for this anymore. I don't want to pay for the. I don't want to live under this tax base that has to do this. So I'm going to go to the wild web. I'm going to go somewhere that's less populated, has lower taxes and all of that. But that's not going to remain the case forever. Uh, Florida is a low tax state uh, and all of that. And people are moving there to get out of New York. Um, If every apartment building in Miami now is going to have to undergo millions of dollars of foundation shoring up after this disaster, which is kind of what happens, uh, those condos aren't going to be quite as, uh, you know, quite as wonderful since they're all they're all going to have to, you know, slap a thousand dollar a month per tenant, um, you know, uh, surcharges on them to pay for the kinds of found to pay to make sure that they don't have the catastrophic failure that happened here. Uh, is that boring? We're talking about infrastructure. Okay. Look, I look. I, I was born and raised in Florida where, honestly, every statue you thought was made of marble and had been there forever was made of fiberglass and you could knock it over with your hand. But so, And I now live in a 130-year-old house, so I actually went the opposite direction. I'm like, don't give yeah. me all the trouble because it gives the place character, et cetera, et cetera. People can agree to disagree, but it is true that this is one of those areas where I think conservatives don't spend enough time talking about uh, the cost of maintaining things, right? We like to, we like to, 
talk about preserving ideas. Well, we actually have to put our money where our mouths are when it comes to preserving actual things, too. And I do the statue toppling last summer, I think, reminded a lot of conservatives of that. But when it comes to actually taking a, a little bit of a tax increase to pay to preserve buildings or to preserve national parks, they people start getting uncomfortable. They shouldn't. They should talk about why that's also important. Well, it's actually let's <laughs> not get oh, too down. On. <laughs> well, we're, we're not talking about public infrastructure. We're talking about private residencies owned by private interests. We're not talking about Florida, which is a limestone foundation. We're talking about the island of Manhattan, which is a granite face that goes deep into the earth's core. And in order to build a foundation there, you have to literally blow it out with dynamite. Uh, this is, there are very different distinct situations here. And to have a building collapse, you can have facades collapse in New York City. Abe and I went to go see one a couple of years ago, a couple of blocks from our building, a facade collapsed and we just, you know, kind of checked it out. No casualties. Happens not infrequently, happens every like five years or so. So, you know, places on the island, but it's not the whole building pancaking because the foundation eroded. That's extraordinarily rare in Manhattan. So take right. heart. No, no, I'm not using Manhattan as an example of a place where you could have the trouble that you have in Florida. I'm just saying that, you know, uh, that New York City is a place that has massive amounts of 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 public private infrastructure that is really old and a lot of what happened in America with the growth of, you know, with with the internal migration is people getting away from older areas and going to newer areas, and then those areas will get old and they will have the same kinds of demands placed on them by the troubles of infrastructure, water piping, gas lines, and it all of that. It is kind of funny to hear you tell it, basically saying to, to Phoenix, you know, like, you're going to have to get your hip replaced eventually, Phoenix. <laughs> Just you wait. It's I true. mean, you know one Republican who can speak extemporaneously on these issues, who knows them backwards, forwards, inside out, and is very good on this sort of thing, is Donald Trump. There's a guy who knows how to build a foundation that won't go away, that sticks around for a very long time. And he knows how to pay off the right people to make that foundation stay where it is. <laughs> okay, maybe. Although, didn't didn't one of his hotels just get blown up in, in, in Atlantic City? Well, he doesn't know how to run the building. Okay, no, but it literally got to build okay, it. Fair enough. Okay, guys, um, I got to ask you. I had I had uh, I went out last night to a really great restaurant, and uh, I said to myself, "Why why does this place make?" delicious food that I can't make aside from them, you know, having skilled chefs and I'm an idiot. The short answer is they have access to the right kitchen tools with made ins professional quality cookware and kitchenware. Anyone is capable of making restaurant quality food at home. Maybe not me, but probably you. If you're serious about cooking, you should invest in your kitchen tools. Made ins cook cookware and kitchenware products are used by thousands of the world's best chefs uh, they source the finest materials and partner with renowned craftsmen to make premium kitchen tools available directly to you without the markup. Made-in products are made to last. They offer a lifetime guarantee. They have 28,000 five-star reviews. Their products are used by some of the world's best chefs at Michelin-starred restaurants around the world. Made-in, better cookware for better meals. And if you're listening to this podcast, to before the 27th of June, so we're recording this on the 25th, so you have till Sunday, okay? You're in luck. Maiden is doing its only sale of the year. Now through Sunday, June 27th, you can get industry pricing. That's right, the same price they give Michelin star restaurants that buy in bulk. 
up to 25% off site-wide. Go to madeincookware.com slash commentary and use promo code commentary for 25% off your first order. That's made in M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com slash commentary. Use promo code commentary. But I guess we got to go because I have to cough. So I apologize <laughs> for Abe, Christina, Noam, John Pot Horrors. Keep the candle burning.